Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies, the podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today it's my privilege to be joined by Silke Malert, postdoctoral scholar at the Freie Universität Amsterdam and author of Shaping the Stranger Churches, Migrants in England and the Troubles in the Netherlands, 1547 to 1585, published in October 2020 by Brill, Silke, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, congratulations on the wonderful book. Um, I'm really excited to talk with you about it. But to start off, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I noticed from your bio that you you started off your academic career studying goldsmiths and Bruges. How did you end up writing a book on foreign churches in Elizabeth, England? That sounds like an interesting journey. Yeah, that, that's right. So I'm actually a, a Belgian. And so I started studying uh, medieval, late medieval goldsmiths in Bruges. And I started noticing how many of these people migrated. Um, and there's a whole network between um, the Holy Roman Empire and then Flanders and England. And so many of them um, migrated in the 15th and 16th century to, to England because there was um, a market there for goldsmith wares and they needed supplies. Um, and then I realized, well, this is actually quite an interesting topic. Why don't I delve a little bit into migration from Flanders to England? Um, but then I saw myself attracted to the sort of late 16th century migration part where I noticed that some of these migrants were actually fleeing and that there were actually uh, churches that they could attend. And that's how I, I got into the stranger churches. Well, that's so interesting. Now, let's get a little background into these stranger churches. Uh, who, who were the stranger churches? You know, what led uh, Thomas Cranmer and the English reformers to invite continental Protestants into London? And, and how did they fit into the Church of England's structure? Um, well, that takes us way back, of course, to the Reformation and the fact that suddenly so many people found themselves... Um, thinking very differently from the people they lived with. Um, some of them became Lutheran, Calvinist, uh, other types of, of Protestantism. Um, and in the low countries too, a Catholic area, some people started uh, to have doubts about the Catholic Church. Some adopted uh, Reformed uh, thoughts, uh, Anabaptist thoughts and so on. Uh, but of course, because low countries were um, Catholic, um, things became difficult for them. Um, the Spanish ruler of the Low Countries um, took it upon him to make sure that the, the Low Countries stayed Catholic. So many of them became uh, executed, were persecuted, and had to flee. Um, when they went to England, they found a sort of free haven where they could be uh, themselves uh, in part religiously. But by this point in England, Edward 
the sixth by 1547, 1550, and so on. Edward VI had taken over uh, from his father, who died in 1547, Henry VIII. And Henry VIII had, of course, started the Reformation in uh, England. Uh, what direction that went in wasn't always uh, very clear from the start, but Edward VI and his counselors certainly took it in a reform direction. And to help them do that, they invited Protestants uh, from all over Europe. And some of those Protestants realized that there was actually quite a big group of co-religionists from low countries uh, in England, and they uh, were allowed to form stranger churches so they could practice a form of reformed religion in their native language. One of the things that I thought was really interesting in this portion of your book where you're talking about this this origin story is that uh, there was a desire to to have these reformed foreign churches as a way to prevent maybe some more radical groups from uh, taking root uh, in the, the the English Protestant Reformation. Could you talk a little bit about that? Um, yes. Yeah, so, of course, uh, by that point, we had many um, Anabaptists also fleeing uh, low countries. Uh, of course, London, where especially London, where they went to, was so well, not relative to today, but by those standards, were relatively large. So they could live there for, um, in sort of in, in the freedom uh, that they wouldn't have in their smaller towns that they came from, um, more uh, in uh, anonymity. Um, so that's why many of them actually went to London. And in London, they started seeing this problem because they sort of saw the Anabaptists as a sect. Um, and if they could bring more and more people into the Reformed Church, that would mean that fewer people uh, might be um, might might be seduced into what they would say seduced into a, a sect like Anabaptism. So the stranger churches were also a useful tool for the government, the English government, to control the foreigners and to make sure that these foreigners um, did not have any. Um, and the Baptist thought or any other thought they consider to be sect uh, like. It's very interesting, Silke. So there's there's this interruption in the story of the stranger churches, isn't there? After the after the Protestant Edward dies in in fifteen fifty three, his Catholic sister Mary succeeds him. What what happens to these these foreign Protestant churches that had been rel relatively autonomous for for a period how does their status change uh, when they when they when they leave and then return uh, you know with with Elizabeth going into the 60s so I think the main big difference is that under Edward um, they also had a say in some of the debates that were happening at that point about surpluses and so on, about uh, kneeling at communion, because one of them, their leaders, John Alasco, was quite a, a charismatic leader. He was a friend of Cranmer and Hooper, um, so he intervened sometimes in, in debates. Um, of course, when Mary came to the throne, they had no other option of leaving, not immediately, but they did leave, and some of them actually stayed behind. Smaller groups, they um, pretended uh, or kept very, very quiet uh, about being there. Uh, but the others, they went on a, a long 
boat tour if, uh, at the start and ended up all over Europe, uh, eventually founding other stranger churches in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, when they came back, so when Elizabeth came to the throne, they saw an opportunity to reestablish those churches. However, it had to be on the terms that Elizabeth dictated. Um, Elizabeth didn't allow um, too much space, not in the sense of Edward, uh, for those strangers because she had not invited them for religious uh, or theological um, help, support in forming the churches. No, they just came back and they asked for the privileges uh, back, but they didn't get everything they wanted. Uh, this time it had to be supervised by their local bishop, so the Bishop of London for the London Stranger Churches. Um, and that, I think, is the main difference. So from that point onwards, they really had to fall in line and had to be careful um, to be able to um, stay there and to be able to keep the government happy with them. Well, after this, um, they've now come back in this Elizabethan um, settlement. In chapter 3, you start to compare and contrast a couple of scenes. On, on the one hand, uh, from kind of 1560 to 1565, there's this growing unrest from Protestants across the, the North Sea in, in the Low Countries. What, what was mobilizing this kind of religious and political unrest? And, and then how were the strangers, the strangers' churches back in, in England, how were they responding to what was happening? It seems like um, this was creating tension um, between, between these refugee churches in, in, who were now in England. So in the Low Countries at that point, we had two uh, things creating tensions. First of all, we had the reformers who were becoming bigger and bigger in group size, but also more vocal. Uh, because they were more vocal, they were also being persecuted more in more intensely. So increasing executions and so on. Um, and because of those uh, increasing numbers of executions, more and more of the reformers also started fleeing. We see this in the 1560s, um, and it increases throughout those years. They fled to England or to the Holy Roman Empire, where there were other uh, foreign churches. But of course, when they got to England, uh, they still heard about executions, about uh, fellow brethren being imprisoned, um, and within those communities, both in the Low Countries, but also in England, a growing um, anger started to, to develop. And we see that, first of all, in Low Countries, the prisons where reforms were held were being broken open by their brethren. So they tried to help them escape. And there was one famous case, actually, uh, that was led by uh, a couple of people from the Stranger Church in Sandwich in England, uh, where they actually crossed the channel uh, by boat. Uh, they broke open the prison, brought the prisoner back, and then, uh, yeah, came, came to sand went to Sandwich. Um, so that kind of action took, took place by people in the foreign churches, but also from by people that were in the countries. Uh, we see that this tension um, was getting problematic because at some point, those people in the Reformed churches, but also at home, asked, well, can we actually do this? Should we really be liberating and using violence and so on? Because 
that is basically a sin if we use violence against the secular authorities because God had ordained them. So this debate um, starts to transpire about what should be happening. Um, and a lot of the strangers had different opinion about what should be done uh, to ease the tension or to uh, help people who were imprisoned um, than people in low countries or people from some of the sort of stranger churches, for instance, those in Sandwich. I think very important uh, in those debates uh, was a difference in how to handle that situation, especially uh, you, ha- you see a difference between the stranger churches in London who want to diplomatically help those prisoners. And they say, no, we will just ask our bishop to send letters to the, the Netherlands to see whether we can free them um, and so on. So they try to, to, to get in between. Uh, they try to release them in a peaceful way um, by using diplomatic skills, their diplomatic skills. While at the same time, other uh, people from Sandwich, but also people in low countries were like, no, we shouldn't be dealing it uh, with, with it in this way. We should just liberate them and we should just demand what we want, which is um, that these people are not being persecuted. You know, I think one of the things that's so interesting about this portion of the story is one of the things that you highlight is that um, there, there's always this tension within... Uh, the reform tradition over the the role of the magistrate and religion. And some of this tension was actually maybe exacerbated by the fact that some of these original leaders of the strangers churches were themselves both religious reformers and aristocracy. Could you talk a little bit about kind of how that tension really foreshadows this kind of growing rift between the response of religious reformation and political revolt and how that's starting to cause some of this tension? That is a very good point, actually. Um, I haven't gone into detail about that too much, and I think lots of work remains to be done on that point. But I believe that what you see in many of the leaders of the stranger churches, uh, or especially those in London, uh, is that they indeed had a more aristocratic upbringing or they were often also more um, intellectually stimulated. You see that some of them um, had an education. Uh, what you don't, what you see in those other, the more provincial stranger churches in England, because the stranger churches are uh, I mean, all over um, south east, I'd say, of England. There are several of them there. I think about 15, 18, 19, um, something like that, depending on the time period you think of. What you see in the more provincial ones is that um, most of the ministers that were serving communities there had um, came from a, a more um, a poorer background, let's say, uh, not a more working class background. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe made a need a difference uh, in the way they viewed um, the, the struggle between the struggle for authority uh, and the struggle with authorities. So yes, that's a very good point. Uh, some people like John Utenhofer, Gottfried uh, von Bingen, they had a very different connection to authority and secular authority in that than people who came from poorer backgrounds and became ministers. 
Well, there's a there's a big turning point in your story, and that's the year 1566. So maybe could you talk a little bit about what what happened, um, and then what were the what was the role of some of the anti-Catholic writings that had come out of this earlier stage in the Stranger Churches, um, in this uh, outburst of of iconoclasm, and how does that start to change the story of of the tension within these within these churches? The tension that we talked about concerning whether violence um, towards secular authorities should be permitted or not really came to a boiling point in 1566, when in the summer of that year, a group of reformers who had come over from Sandwich, so in England, from the foreign churches, had started preaching towards a crowd in hedge preachings um, in West, the West Quartier, so the West of Flanders. And um, at this point, the, the people who are listening had become so agitated that they had started destroying um, the churches in the surrounding areas. So they were cleansing the churches of everything that was visibly Catholic. They were cleansing it of images of saints, um, which they would call idols. They uh, were... Um, destroying also some um, relics of, of, of secular authority and so on. So they were cleansing the churches, and this happened uh, in several churches, and it spread. So reformed groups started throughout the Low Countries, started dis- desecrating these churches. They started um, destroying these, these idols within it. Some of those the secretions were very well organized. Others were uh, conspicuous in, in their lack of organization. Now, this has always been seen as um, something that was organized from England, uh, which has also made many historians say, well, actually what happened in England was these, these people radicalized. They radicalized and they wanted to make sure that the churches were prepared uh, for uh, reformed services in the Low Countries. Now, this is a big turning point for everyone. I think the people in England and in the Low Countries were shocked about what happened there. Um, in London, we see that, well, very soon after this, um, or within a year after this, iconoclastic fury, as I often call it, this iconoclasm, people started flocking in the into England uh, because they were being persecuted for their participation in the iconoclasm. So we see a wave of migrants going to England. Um, but in England, at that point, you see a clash. You see that that problem with violence become came to the surface once more. You see a clash between the people who uh, were serving the church of the church in London that were saying, well, actually, what you committed there is a sin. And even in 1570, they were still preaching against what happened, against the iconoclasm. Of course, among the people listening to these sermons, to their preaching, were people who had participated in it, and they felt very um, insecure and sometimes angry about that as well, because they believed in many ways that they were only practicing what was preached. Of course, the reformers had been preaching against the images. They had been preaching against the saints. So why would they not be allowed to now go and cleanse the churches? Um, And yet that again 
made those some of the ministers, especially in London, especially Gottfried von Wingen of the London Dutch Church, feel like, well, no, that was not the message. You should cleanse the church, but you should do it in an in, in orderly manner. So you see you have those um, differing views and clashing views. And this, these clashing views were eating the church from inside out in, in a way. They were really making life hard in the Dutch church in London uh, between 1567 and 1570. But also the relationships between the Church of London and that of Sandwich uh, were a part of the population, a part of the ministers had actually allowed this to happen and even initiated it. Um, so it was very hard for all the reformers to uh, be on the same line about what happened there. And this this story that you're telling of of great tension in the strangers' churches between um, how how they want to respond to what's going on in these these revolts only gets more pronounced um, with around the person of William of Orange. So, well, what did the stranger churches, especially those in London, think of of his revolt? And and then how did the London churches and the other refugee churches differ? on their attitudes about uh, this this political revolt that he's he's leading. Reformers in, in general felt quite uneasy for many years about William of Orange because William of Orange had, during the 1560s, had not always been on their side. Um, in fact, he wanted to um, make sure that the religious landscape looked a little different. Um, he wasn't a reformer um, and he only became one really um, in the 1570s. So they were very much um, feeling um, ambiguous about his goals for this revolt, uh, his political ambitions, but also the religious ambitions that were potentially uh, intertwined with that. Next to that, you also have the problem that William of Orange needed money. So he was constantly asking money to these stranger churches and stranger churches as church institutions went, did not necessarily have that kind of money. While some of the members that were, um, the members of stranger, stranger churches probably did. So you get a question about whether it was actually lawful for Orange to uh, be rebelling against Philip of Spain and, and so on. And even in 1570, 1572, some of the foreign churches thought it was unlawful what he was doing. And some of them would have rather actually stayed loyal to uh, the Spanish king, to Philip II, if only they would receive freedom of religion. So at the same time that... Um that there's a lot of conflict over over how to relate with with William of Orange. Uh, there's a little more agreement, um, and your in your final chapter in chapter six, um, that's happening during the same period over how they want to respond, if not to the the revolt, just to the to the Church Reformation. So, um, how how did the the strangers' churches respond to the the institutional changes that were also happening in the the Dutch church, especially during this period? The scholars have actually often asserted that the 
building of the Reformed churches in the Low Countries was initiated or very much influenced by the exiled churches. Instead, we see that very often um, religious changes came from the growing churches in the Low Countries in the 1570s and were implemented in England rather than the other way around. Um, and what we see is that the English stranger churches, they started to struggle very often economically. They had many poor people to look after. At the same time, they had to contribute to their fault, but they also had to remain faithful to their English government. So they were they needed to be careful in supporting Orange at times and not supporting Orange at different times. But what they could do and what they felt more happy about was supporting the reformed churches that were growing in low countries by sometimes sending the money, but also sometimes sending ministers their way. They did get proportionally many questions um, from those churches for money um, and for ministers, but also other types of support. So they just couldn't handle all of those uh, requests, to be fair. And that is what also made um, made their efforts towards the Reformation and Revolt just, just very difficult. They couldn't do both and at the same time keep their own churches alive because some of those churches were really struggling with the lack of money. So instead they focused on helping the Reformed churches, but often usually begrudgingly. You kind of feel through those documents, you kind of feel like, oh, are they asking for money again? Are they asking to send someone again? We can't do this for the hundreds of time. We don't have, we don't have that money. Well, by a way of kind of wrapping things up, this is a, a period that's that's been well studied by a, a whole array of scholars. It's it's a very interesting story, but. I'm curious, how have you tried to shape the story that's being told about the relationship between the stranger churches and the events in the Low Countries? What has been the prevailing narrative and, and how have you tried to correct it? <laughs> well, I feel like I have shown a, a bigger range of responses from um, the foreign churches. Usually, historians have tried to show how these stranger churches shaped the revolt and the Reformation in the Low Countries, but I have shown that quite uh, as often what happened in the Low Countries actually shaped the stranger churches. It impacted them quite a lot, and they weren't always quite sure what to do with that. It actually if I divided them internally, um, it made things. It made it very hard for them to support the Reformation and, and the revolt in low countries. Um, what that does is also showing that within those stranger churches, you see that people did not necessarily radicalize, and the the examples that have been used to show, hey, look, for instance, the one in 1566 where people came over from. England to initiate the iconoclasm, that that was only a small part of the larger movement, and that not everyone thought that way. Those examples are usually used to show these people have just radicalized in exile. This is what exile did to them, when there's actually a, very, a much larger picture to consider. Uh, and that's what I feel I have contributed in this book. 
Well, it's a very great book, and I really enjoyed reading it. I hope our our readers uh, go and get their copy of Shaping the Stranger Churches. But now that it's it's written and it's published, uh, what are you? Uh, what have you turned your attention to? What are you working on now? Oh well, that's an interesting question. Thank you. Um, I feel that in many ways the projects I am working on right now is a result of the book that I wrote here. I was interested in what happens to these migrants because we do know that a part of them move to low countries, move back to low countries, usually not to Flanders or Brabant or, you know, the place they came from, but often to Holland. And the next part of, of the, the general thesis about what happens to these people is that they have a huge impact on the church in uh, the Dutch Republic. However, we see that that huge impact, well, that study has sometimes been discredited a little, and we thought it was time to actually look at the impact of those migrants. Was it radicalization? Did they actually bring over extreme ideas and militancy? Or did they bring over a broader um, view on the religious landscape and what it should look like. So we're looking at, because I'm doing this as a, as a team effort, we're looking at what types of migrants come back. Can we call them exile, refugees, whatever? How many do actually return? And what do they bring to the landscape of the Dutch Republic or do not bring? Well, that sounds like a great project. I'm looking forward to watching how that um, that new book develops. And maybe we can have you and the team on to the New Books Network to talk all about it once it's uh, once it's ready. Thank you very much, Ryan. That would be exciting. Well, this has been a conversation with Silke Malert, author of Shaping the Stranger Churches. You can get your copy from Brill. Thanks so much, Silke. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Christian Studies. Visit newbooksnetwork.com to browse our catalog of over 10,000 interviews. And of course, share this episode with a friend. That's it for now. And I hope you have a great day.